This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 26th. The International Court of Justice has ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide in Gaza, but stop short of telling Israel to stop its war against Hamas. We'll get reaction to the ruling from Israel's ambassador to Canada and the chief representative of the Palestinian general delegation to Canada. Plus, South Africa calls the ruling a decisive victory. We'll talk to the South African High Commissioner to Canada. And Parliament returns on Monday, after a week that was supposed to be a reset for the Liberals but didn't quite go as planned. The Power Panel is here to look ahead. The International Court of Justice ordered Israel to take measures to limit harm to Palestinians in Gaza as part of its highly anticipated interim judgment today. A judgment that describes South Africa's allegations that Israel has committed genocide as plausible. Israel declared war on Hamas after the October 7th attack that killed more than 1,200 people. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says an estimated 26,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israel since then, about half are children and women. The ICJ stopped short of calling for a ceasefire, but said Israel should take all measures to prevent genocidal acts, prevent and punish any direct incitement to genocide, and to take immediate measures to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. Riaz Sheikh is South Africa's High Commissioner to Canada. High Commissioner, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again, David. The, the, your government described this as a victory, even though the court didn't order at least the ceasefire you mm-hmm. were hoping for, and we still have to wait a while on a full ruling mm-hmm. on whether your allegations of genocide are, are, are carry the day. What is your reaction to the ruling? I think my government is correct that it is a victory, but not necessarily for South Africa. It's a victory for international law. It's a victory to hold countries that act in impunity to be brought before the courts. And the court ruled that there is a plausible genocide case. And I think it's a victory at that end. It's a victory for the Palestinian people who are suffering the enormous brutality of this uh, plausible genocide. And we think that if the decisions of the uh, court are implemented, that there would be relief to the suffering of the Palestinian people. That's the big question. Uh, I mean, how uh, optimistic, how likely do you think it is that, that these remedies will be implemented? We've mm. seen already Prime Minister Netanyahu say they are going to continue to conduct mm. their military operations until they defeat Hamas. Mm. And we've seen historically in Bosnia, in Israel, in Russia, mm. the inability to enforce mm. ICJ rulings. This ruling is a seismic shift in in terms of world governance there was a world before the ruling and there's a world after the ruling and we all now live in the world after the ruling i think every country who's a signatory to the uh, genocide convention will have an obligation to bring the decision of the court foremost into the actions of uh, the state of israel and as such israel will be standing alone so to speak, in respect of if it does not uh, abide by the decisions of the court. Don't forget, David, 30 days. They have 30 days in which they've got to report to the court 
about how they've implemented the decisions of the court. And the, I think that's a game changer. Well, why? I mean, the United States, uh, in terms of your point on Israel standing alone, the United States said today that the ruling of the, of the court was consistent with Washington's view that Israel has a right to take action in accordance with international law. Right. So the, their, their biggest ally mm-hmm. is standing with them today. Yeah. I beg to, to disagree. Uh, I think the United States and other politicians and members of government who argued that our case is meritless, well, they have got two problems right now. The first is that the court found that our case is with merit uh, insofar as the provisional measures are concerned. And therefore, all those politicians, even governments, who have said that the case is meritless, now stand in the real possibility, if they do not retract those statements, Mm. as being complicit to genocide. And that is something everyone has got to take into account that their past statements, their current statements, may in fact be complicit to genocide. The 30 days that Israel has to report back to the court on the measures they're taking to mitigate against Mm -hmm. loss of life inside Gaza, you called that a game changer. Why do you think that is a game changer? Because in 30 days, you can imagine a situation in 30 days, if Israel has to file in the report, it can do two things. It can file the report, Mm. in which it's got to outline the measures that is undertaken in terms of humanitarian aid, all measures in regard to protecting uh, parts in the groups uh, of Palestinian people from genocide. Now you can imagine a situation in which Israel fails to, to submit a report. That will not be accepted by the world opinion and it will not be accepted by the court and certainly it will weaken the hands of uh, Israel's allies, uh, especially in the United Nations, in the General Assembly, etc., which will then decide on further action. Right. So I, I just want to be clear for people watching at home. This is not a finding uh, to the totality of your allegation that this is a genocide. This is a, a, a finding to proceed, I guess, with a, a, an investigation of that, saying that your allegations are plausible. And, and I want to correct that. It is a finding of plausible genocide. Yes. And that cannot be escaped. The court ruled that they believe that there is a basis for it to be called plausible genocide. It's not saying no genocide, plausible genocide, which is a standard for the provisional measures. So the standard for the provisional measures has been met. And now the world has to deal with the fact that there's a finding on plausible genocide. And it, it says that it, it, the, the allegations you've made appear to be capable of falling within the provisions of the convention. And Israel has said throughout this that it takes as many steps as possible, more steps than any other military, uh, to defend against the unnecessary loss of civilian life. And the court says here that while such steps are to be encouraged, they are insufficient to remove the risk that irreparable prejudice will be caused before the court issues its final decision. How do you hope Israel changes the way it is conducting its military operations in Gaza? Because the Prime Minister said today it isn't going to stop. How do you want to see it adapted? I don't want to respond to to the utterances of the Israel or its officials in regard to how they're going to violate international law, I would want to give them some advice in respect of how they should respect international law. Now there is a finding and the finding says and the order says all measures to prevent plausible genocide and all measures in respect of ensuring humanitarian assistance. Yes. Now there is no way you can meet those two conditions if you do not have an implicit ceasefire. 
Because there's no way, if you are bombing a place, there's no way you're going to be able to take humanitarian assistance into that place that you are bombing. And this ruling is of such importance because for the first time the court has declared for all of us to know that the Palestinians as a people and as a, a, a group needs to be protected from plausible genocide. This has been some of the immediate analysis, the point you made that the five or six orders that are spelled mm -hmm. out here are largely impossible to implement without a ceasefire, even though the court didn't order a ceasefire. The ICJ deals with states, nations. Correct. It can't deal with an organization like Hamas, mm -hmm. which is not a government, which is not a country. Um, do you think, do you believe that is why they didn't order a full ceasefire or do you believe uh, there was a different reason the court didn't order the full ceasefire you received? It, it could be in the fact that how would you make bind a cease, uh, uh, bind Hamas by a ceasefire and it will make, in fact, it could devalue the judgment in itself if you make a, a demand that cannot, or ruling that cannot be implemented. But we welcome that ruling as we welcome the court's decision or the court's order that Hamas must immediately and unconditionally release hostages. We believe that's correct. My minister, my president has gone public today and in the past, and we've repeated it again today in the aftermath of this decision of the court, that Hamas must release all hostages unconditionally. And there's a reason for that, because we can no longer have Hamas having the hostages which in turn keeps the peace process and the recognition of the Palestinian state hostage to the fact that they are mm -hmm. hostages. But on that point, I mean, if, if the court has no authority over Hamas, how, I mean, the, thor the court is calling for Hamas to release mm. people. They can't order Hamas because of its lack of jurisdiction, yes. correct? So it, it, it carries moral weight, but certainly... Well, there's not. an obligation on states that right. do have contact with Hamas. There's an obligation right. on states who have an association with Hamas or a access to Hamas to make clear the decision of the court. And I think and I'm hoping that Hamas will be reasonable in this matter and release the hostages unconditionally immediately. So with that can attend to the more burning pressing issue of the day, which is the recognition of the Palestinian state. The, um, the order in 30 days is when Israel has to come back mm -hmm. uh, with some sort of a, an explanation of the steps it's taking or, as you say, not comply with this order. Where do you hope this conflict is in 30 days? Well, this is a remarkable question because on the 2nd of February 1990, the apartheid government made an announcement that they're lifting the ban on all political parties uh, and inviting process for negotiation. So let's imagine for one minute that tomorrow morning, Prime Minister Netanyahu wakes up and says he is suspending all military action in regard to the Gaza and he's inviting the Palestinians to embrace the question of, of peace and negotiations so that both states can live together in peace. What a wonderful day that will mean for the world. And what's good about that, it's human agency. It's human agency. God is not preventing this solution. Human beings are preventing the solution. And human beings can act in a way that produces a solution. There is certainly nothing in Mr. Netanyahu's recent comments that would suggest 
a change of that magnitude, right? He has said that he sees no role for a Palestinian state in a post-war Gaza. Uh, they have made it very clear that their primary concern right now is some sort of a security arrangement that can lead to coexistence, I believe is the phrase that was used, between Israelis and Palestinians in the area, but certainly no existence of a self-determined yes. Palestinian state. So uh, that sort of a shift seems unlikely based Correct. on... David, that, that is what we lived with for 350 years under apartheid. And then one day, pre uh, President de Klerk made that shift. We think it's possible to make that shift. And I hear what you're saying, that we don't think it's likely. But we've got to believe in hope that undemocratic people can produce democratic outcomes. And this is such a moment that exists for Israel, that exists for Palestine, that exists for all the countries around the world, that we must believe in the hope of a peaceful settlement of that conflict. Hi, Commissioner Riyashik. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, David. The United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA, says it has opened an investigation into several employees suspected of involvement in those October 7th attacks in Israel. The organization did not disclose the number of employees being investigated or the nature of their alleged involvement. The U.S. State Department responded, saying it is extremely troubled by these allegations and it has suspended funding to UNRWA until the allegations are addressed. Strong reaction around the world today from both sides of the Israel-Palestinian conflict on the International Court of Justice's ruling. It found that Israel must take steps to prevent genocide in Gaza, but it did not call for an end to Israel's war on Hamas. This order means that the court recognized the gravity of the situation and was convinced by South Africa's compelling presentation that was based on law and fact that there are plausible cause to believe that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, and it was justly rejected. The charge of genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous. I'm very disappointed right now. Um because Palestinian people are being occupied for the last 75 years and it was like the only way that they got justice. Just the fact that the state of Israel is being put on trial for genocide, something that we are survivors of, something that we experienced, is absolutely absurd. For more reaction on this judgment, Ido Moed is Israel's ambassador to Canada, and he joins me now. Ambassador, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, leading up to today, your government and your, many of your supporters had called this allegations by South Africa baseless and meritless. Today, the court said it was plausible. What's your reaction to that finding? The court said that the case didn't say anything about the case, whether it has any merit whatsoever. I mean, this is very clear, and it was repeated several times. What the court was asked to do is not to decide on the case. It was, it was asked to make any kind of uh, decision about what are the next immediate steps that needs to be done. And what the court has done is to reject the uh, request to uh, avoid Israel, to prevent Israel from defending itself ag against this genocidal terrorist organization. And so in that, the court recognizes that not only should the hostages be released immediately, which is one of the main objectives of our, of our operation right now, but also that this case has no merit in the sense that whatever we are doing, of course, we have to make sure that uh, as many people stay out of harm's way, which we have been doing 
all throughout this operation. We have to make sure that the international community is aware of that. This is what we've been doing in the past and we will continue to do in, in the future and that we abide by international law, which is, we, we have been doing up until now and of course we are committed to continue to do in the future. The, the, the court did not call for the outright ceasefire or for the stop of the military operations, but they put out conditions that people such as the High Commissioner for South Africa and others say are almost impossible to meet if you continue with your military operation the way it's been going? David, there were no conditions. The court asked Israel to take into consideration the fact that there are people on the ground which we, are, of course, are very well aware of. And so when we are talking about innocent people and keeping people out of harm's way, this is what we have, exactly what we have been doing. We are faced with a genocidal terrorist organization that is embedding itself among the population. And of course, this genocidal terrorist organization doesn't have, is, it's not an entity right. that abides by international law. On the contrary, it abuses international law in a way that may put Israel in jeopardy in this case, but it does not because we abide by international law. And this is exactly what we have been doing. It says here in, you know, in the judgment that uh, it talks about the steps you, you've pointed to that you take to minimize civilian casualties, but it says, according, uh, while steps such as these are to be encouraged, they are insufficient, is what they've said, that the way it's been conducted so far has not minimized the civilian loss and the destruction of property in the way that the court would like to see. So are, are you saying that this is not instructing you to do things differently? or, or What it says, change? the court says exactly what we have been suing. What, what we, what, sorry, what we have been saying. The number of casualties is high. It is mm -hmm. any casualty is too high. Any number of people, innocent people whose lives are lost is too high for us and, and for the Palestinians, and we understand that. But we need, did not choose to uh, fight this terrorist organization. They have chosen to target Israelis, to kill Israelis, and to continue to do it again and again, given the opportunity. So there is no way for us to stop this war, because otherwise this monster will rise again and try to kill more Israelis. This is clear. This is what they have been saying, and this is what they are doing. They continue to shoot at us, and they will continue to do that unless we are uh, completely victorious against them. So you see no suggestion that Israel should change its military tactics and its approach inside Gaza based on the findings here and, and the, the, the order to come back in 30 days and explain how you're going to do things differently from a military perspective? We have to be very clear on what the court said. The court did not say Israel did not do it in the past, please do it in the future. The court said take these issues into consideration. This is exactly what we have been doing. This is exactly what the military has been doing for a very long period of time. And this is whatever we are doing within our operation uh, against the Hamas is not directed against the Palestinian people. We've made that clear. We are actually trying to protect them against Hamas when we are facilitating their movement in the Gaza Strip from areas where they may be in harm's way, and we know that Hamas will try to keep them there. So our military are risking their lives in order for Palestinians to move from one area to another to get to areas of shelter that uh, we have informed them in, in advance that they can have uh, safe havens in. We have to remember that we are dealing here with a lopsided international mechanism that actually accuses Israel, which is acting in self-defense against a genocidal organization. And in doing that, abused by South Africa, uh, that has also welcomed another genocidal, convicted genocidal leader of Sudan, 
in doing that, they are trying to tie our hands in our self-defense. This is, of course, uh, this is outrageous. And so we will continue to defend ourselves and we will continue to abide by international law. So my conversation with the High Commissioner and then my conversation with you, it, it, I, I mean, obviously two countries have very different views on this, but you have very different interpretations of this judgment. You know, the High Commissioner for South Africa says this is a finding of a plausible genocide being committed by the people of Israel or by the military of Israel. And you're saying that this is a vindication uh, of the conduct of Israel. I mean, both cannot be true. And the word plausible is used by the justices in, in, in the writing here, and just as the word insufficient is used when talking about efforts to protect civilians. So, so how should the rest of the world view those key phrases? I'm not going to compare whatever I'm saying with a country that hosted a convicted genocidal leader because I think that their interpretation of international law must be different than mine, for sure. So that's not any kind of argument that I'm going to conduct. However, whatever the court says, we are reading very carefully. And uh, again, we have reiterated, as Prime Minister has said, Israel is a law-abiding country. And when it comes to international humanitarian law, we are making sure that whoever is not part of this monstrous genocidal mechanism called Hamas will be as much as possible kept out of harm's way. And we have numerous demonstrations how we've done that and how we will continue to do that, even when we have to risk Israeli lives. Uh, just the other day, to give an example, 21 Israeli soldiers were killed when a bomb went off uh, through an attack of Hamas when they were trying to explode, to, to um, uh, destroy infrastructure of Hamas. We could have bombed this place. We just could have dropped a bomb from the air. But we, have do we are doing it in a different way because we understand that we are operating in an area that is filled with humans, that are with people who are not part of this mechanism. And we are trying to distinguish between them as much as possible. But let me just give you an example. When you're looking at a hospital or, mili or uh, a medical installation, where we find missiles hidden below this installation. They are shot from that installation into Israel, to a densely populated area. And I ask you and ask our viewers, what would you do as somebody who is uh, in charge of the protection of lives in Israel when an attack is coming from an area that is actually protected, like a, military, like a hospital? Does it become a military target or not? That's the question that international law allows us to weigh. Right. No, I understand that. And there has been, it has been months of grim moral calculus in, in this particular thing. But, you know, and I know you disagree with the numbers from the Gaza Health Ministry or Israel at least questions the numbers from the Gaza Health Ministry because it is a Hamas-run organization. But the death toll is north of 25,000 now. And, and I know, I, I believe the IDF has said about 9,000 of that would be Hamas militants, um, is, is the most recent figure I've seen. That's still 15, 16, 17,000 civilians. You know, at what point does it become even too much for Israel to bear uh, on that front? I, I appreciate Hamas uses hospitals, Hamas uses schools. I appreciate all of that. But there's a lot of kids, there's a lot of women, there's a lot of non-combatants dying as a result of this, and now this decision drops. At what point is it too much? When it's one. Just one. One is too many. We, we cherish life. We want to protect life. We want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our neighbors. This is exactly what we did until October the 7th, 2023. With our military might, we could have done something else. We have chosen to take a period of three weeks to prepare 
for military operation, which we are conducting very meticulously. We know that it is a very complicated operation and therefore we have tried and we are still working very hard to warn the population to get, out, to get away from harm's way. And we will continue to do that. But we have uh, an ins a, a monster that is facing us that has killed 1,200 people and so and, and vow to continue to do that. So mm -hmm. we have to do this, we have to conduct this operation, we have no other choice. We understand that the numbers are huge. We also understand our uh, uh, duty and responsibility to facilitate the, entry, the, the provision of uh, assistance to the, the population and we are doing that in all possible ways. So the court has said that within 30 days they would like a report, they're insisting on a report from Israel explaining how they're going to change the way they're conducting the military operations to further minimize the loss of innocent life. Will your country comply with that? Will they change their military operations and adopt new tactics and justify it to the court? I'm not sure we're talking about the same thing. The, a report or information that Israel would provide about the way it's conducting it, its operation are already uh, uh, distributed on the media everywhere and, and we will continue to do that and will also inform the court of all of that. When it comes to changing whatever we're changing, that that's a tactical decision that is based on attaining the goals that we have in front of us and we have to release 136 hostages that are still kept somewhere in the tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip in small cells. We have to remember they are, uh, they are hungered they are starved, they are raped, they are mutilated. We have no idea what is happening with these people. Mm -hmm. And no country in the world will abandon its citizens, its civilians, in a way like, uh, in, in such conditions. We have, to, we have to keep this fight. We are abiding by international law. We'll also inform the court again, as we did before. We will continue to inform the court and all the international community of the way we are uh, upholding international humanitarian law, specifically in this context. And uh, we will make sure that we will have our hostages back as soon as possible and that Hamas will not be a source of threat to Israel in the future. Just as a final point, Ambassador, I mean, this is a 17-person panel of judges, I, I believe, and most of the votes seem to have gone 15-2. But there was one that went 16-1, and that the Israeli-appointed justice voted with this one to increase the amount of humanitarian aid into Gaza. What do you need to do there? How do you make that happen? We are... We indeed understand that we have to do whatever is possible to get as much as possible humanitarian aid inside. So from our side, we are increasing the, the, the systems, the mechanisms, uh, the security checks, whatever is necessary to add and augment the number of trucks that have been going into the Gaza Strip of aid, of food, of medical supplies, everything. We understand that and we will continue to increase and do our utmost to make sure that as much as possible flows into the Gaza Strip. We have to remember that much of it is uh, uh, stopped by Hamas and much of it does not get to its uh, mm -hmm. end destination. We have to remember that, that there are other organizations there that are dealing with that. So, but as far as Israel is concerned, we will continue to do our utmost to allow for this uh, provision to go inside uh, the Gaza Strip. But it, uh, sorry, I know I said a final point, but one more final point. A, a lot of people have read this decision, though, as, as suggesting that you haven't done enough to get aid in and you haven't done enough to protect civilians. You reject that interpretation of this uh, ruling? 
I would say again that we are doing our utmost under the conditions of fighting a war against a genocidal ter terrorist organization that is holding 136 hostages underneath the ground in the most horrendous conditions of which we have no ideas of their whereabouts or their conditions themselves. We are doing our utmost to protect the civilian population of Gaza as much as we can, militarily, humanitarian, in any way we can. And we will continue to do that while attaining our goals. Ido Moed, Israel's ambassador to Canada, thank you again for your time today, sir. Thank you. The International Court of Justice ordered Israel to take measures to limit harm to Palestinians in Gaza as part of its highly anticipated interim judgment today. A judgment that describes South Africa's allegations that Israel has committed genocide as plausible. Israel declared war on Hamas after the October 7th attack that killed more than 1,200 people. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says an estimated 26,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israel since then. About half are women and children. The International Court of Justice stopped short of calling for a ceasefire, but said Israel should take all measures to prevent genocidal acts, prevent and punish any direct incitement to genocide, and to take immediate measures to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. Israel's ambassador to Canada, Ido Moed, said that this ruling recognizes Israel's right to defend itself against Hamas. What the court has done is to reject the uh, request to uh, avoid Israel, to prevent Israel from defending itself ag against this genocidal terrorist organization. And so in that, the court recognizes that not only should the hostages be released immediately, which is one of the main objectives of our, of our operation right now, but also that this case has no merit in the sense that whatever we are doing, of course, we have to make sure that uh, as many people stay out of harm's way, which we have been doing all throughout this operation. We have to make sure that the international community is aware of that. This is what we've been doing in the past and we will continue to do in, in the future and that we abide by international law, which is we, too, we have been doing up until now. And of course, we are committed to continue to do in the future. The, the, the court did not call for the outright ceasefire or for the stop of the military operations, but they put out conditions that people such as the High Commissioner for South Africa and others say are almost impossible to meet if you continue with your military operation the way it's been going? David, there were no conditions. The court asked Israel to take into consideration the fact that there are people on the ground which we, are, of course, are very well aware of. And so when we are talking about innocent people and keeping people out of harm's way, this is what we have exactly what we have been doing. We are faced with a genocidal terrorist organization that is embedding itself among the population. And of course, this genocidal terrorist organization doesn't have, is, it's not an entity right. that abides by international law. On the contrary, it abuses international law in a way that may put Israel in jeopardy in this case, but it does not because we abide by international law. Okay, for more on today's ruling, Mona Abu Amara is the chief representative of the Palestinian delegation to Canada, and she joins me now in the studio. Mona Abu Amara, welcome back to the show. Hi, David. You, you heard what the Israeli uh, ambassador there, what Ido Moed said. He said that, he, in his view, uh, today's ruling was a win for Israel, and it made it clear that Israel is defending itself against evil. How do you interpret this ruling? Uh, well, had that been uh, the truth, we wouldn't have seen uh, Israeli uh, government officials so angry about the ruling and calling it out, uh, calling it uh, anti-Semitic and refusing uh, its premise. 
uh, the the ambassador mentioned uh, that the case uh, was meritless and 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 that uh, the court agreed to that and I uh, really disagree because had that been the truth again we wouldn't have seen provi provisional orders or ruling made today that's the main win there is a case there is a plausible case that Israel is committing gen genocide and the court is doing everything. You said it, it, it fell short of uh, actually calling out uh, Israel to stop um, its uh, genocide and uh, aggression. But as you look into the provisions and, and the rulings that um, had been done, and since we know that uh, Israel's aim is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people. So stopping those would be stopping the aggression, because every time Israel makes an act, it is against, it is killing uh, members of the group and causing bodily, bodily and uh, mental harm and uh, obliterating deliber deliberately uh, destruction to uh, buildings and uh, right. the livelihood of the Palestinians. Right, and, yeah, and I did ask the Ido Moed quite a few times, uh, you know, the, the use of the word plausible in the judgment is what is really standing out exactly. here because this is what they use as the basis to order these, these, these interim measures. But what the court didn't order was that ceasefire. Do you see that as a failure, that the ceasefire wasn't ordered by the ICJ? Not at all. It wasn't uh, the main purpose uh, because had it even called for a ceasefire, we know that Israel wouldn't abide by it. So that was not the main uh, failure, uh, that as, they, as Israel calls it. It's the... Um, the way that Israel is portraying it instead of thinking that the whole world, including the highest international um, court of justice, is calling what it's doing a plausible case for genocide. So it needs to re-examine its steps on the ground. There, there is a 30-day deadline for Israel to inform the court of, of actions it's taking uh, to comply with the interim measures. The provisions are meant to be binding, but they have proven uh, in many other uh, court rulings by the ICJ to be unenforceable. If people don't comply, the UN Security Council is supposed to enforce them. We know how the veto system works there. How optimistic are you that things may actually change inside Gaza, that Israel may change how it's conducting its military operations based on this finding from the court today? Well, what I know is that uh, what was yesterday is not like what's happening uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, every act by Israel would be looked at very closely and examined against the ruling of uh, the ICJ. And again, because we know that Israel's main purpose is genocidal, it's for ethnic cleansing and forcible transfer of the Palestinian people of 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza, but also um, on people in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So for that reason, we know that it can't fulfill the requirements of the ruling. Well, I mean, you all know Israel would argue with that interpretation of this, and, and they've talked about the need for coexistence while at the same time rejecting a, a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. And uh, we heard from Prime Minister Netanyahu today saying they're going to continue their military operations inside Gaza until they've dealt with Hamas uh, to their satisfaction. So what do you think this conflict will look like 30 days from now? Like, will this, I don't want to, you know, will this court decision, will this, will it, actually change things or do you think we'll just continue with what we've seen so far? Well now it's a test 
for the international courts themselves, for right. the uh, Security Council, and for third states. It's the responsibility, again, the one that we have been calling for, for 75 years. It's the international community's responsibility to now implement its own laws without putting Palestine as an exception. There was also the call by the court today for Hamas to unconditionally and immediately release the hostages. And uh, Ido Moed said to me after our interview that a position Israel has said many times that they will stop the fighting if the hostages are released. Do you think Hamas should do that? Do you think they will enter into any kind of... I know you're not part of Hamas and don't speak for Hamas, so I'm not asking you to do that. But do you think they may enter into any kind of a conversation about a further release of hostages um, because I know the U.S. is trying to broker that now. <laughs> what, what I think is that this is another uh, charade because since the beginning of this aggression on Gaza, there was a deal that was not accepted by uh, Israel to stop the aggression in, in uh, um, and releasing the hostages. And there were multiple um, uh, efforts after that. And I need... Uh, Ambassador Mo to ask uh, the uh, parents, the families of the hostages, if they think that Isra that's Israel's goal is to uh, release them. Right. I, I mean, do you think Hamas should comply with this order? I, I, I know. I think. I, think, I believe President Abbas has called for I this. I think so. all parties, when we uh, refer our cases to international courts, uh, we don't. We do that fully knowing that we will also be responsible for anything that comes out of it. So any orders should be followed. It doesn't matter what party it's on. It's binding for, for all parties. So, uh, yes, of course. Right, so the two parties of this conflict can't pick and choose which ones they like. All of them should be complied with is, is your position. Of course, but the, the two parties uh, in this case are South Africa and Israel, not uh, Israel and Hamas, because Hamas is not uh, Not a, a nation, a right, and, and so, so there's no jurisdiction. And that, that is what uh, Israel tries to conflate all the time uh, um, to make it seem that that's its war. Canada uh, issued a statement today uh, on the ICJ ruling, reiterating essentially the, the, the neutral position it, it's carved out here, voicing support for, for the ICJ's role in upholding international law, but not saying it necessarily endorses the case that, that South Africa has brought. How satisfied are you with that position uh, by the Trudeau government on this? Not at all satisfied. It's uh, the opposite of that. I'm uh, shocked and saddened by the statement that I've seen. Um, and uh, remember, the last time I was in, on your show, I was defending those uh, neutral um, right. statements that were coming. But today's statement um, reminded me of a lot of other dehumanizing statements, anti-Palestinian statements that have been uh, coming out from the uh, Canadian government. Um, and it reminds me of yesterday's statement as well about the first bilateral uh, uh, declaration meeting between uh, Minister Jolie and uh, Israel's uh, foreign minister, who is a main uh, character of incitement against the Palestinians and part of uh, this case as well. Why do you say that statement was dehumanizing? Because it did call f uh, <coughs> for increased humanitarian aid, the release of hostages, exactly. the minimization of, of, of civilian casualties, which have been enormous throughout this conflict. Why was it dehumanizing in your view? W what do you mean by minimizing casualties? Does it mean that instead of uh, Israel killing 5,000, it should kill 1,000? 
um, Palestinians are not a charity case, and our cause is not uh, one for uh, a religious cause or uh, a cause, a humanitarian cause. So asking to uh, provide humanitarian assistance without calling out. Exactly, we, we are not numbers, but when you imagine that there are 26 plus thousand with thousands under the rubble, and this is the reaction um, on Canada's side, apart, and when this foreign minister comes out and, and talks in such a horrific way in an EU meeting about creating a, uh, artif an artificial island to put Gazans on, and then even that island, which they would run to, apparently, is controlled by Israel. So this mentality of supremacy and racism and control and oppression, we can't imagine Canada not calling that out and instead reiterating uh, Israel's self-defense, which is part of the green lighting that started all of this madness after in, on October 8th when all leaders were coming out and saying, talking about Israel's right uh, to defend itself. This is what got us here. The, the rulings of this court um, are intended to be enforced by the United Nations Security Council. I've seen some reporting uh, today that there may be efforts to escalate it to the UN Security Council to try to get some sort of a resolution on the enforcing of it. I don't know if the U.S. would veto it, but it has vetoed significant, I think three or four times now, mm -hmm. uh, various rulings um, targeting Israel because part of the, the Russia-U.S. dynamic is a big one at play there. What happens if, if this goes to the U.N. Security Council and it goes nowhere and it gets vetoed? What, what, what message does that send? Well, uh, we are not going to stand there. We are going to um, work towards an implementation, work towards uh, knocking every door and every venue. And as I told you, these binding rulings, maybe they can't be enforced in the Security Council, but they are still binding to everyone. And even those countries, and that's what makes me baffled by Canada's statement. Even countries like Germany and France, the way they came out with uh, how they agreed with uh, to implement whatever ruling comes uh, out and they've of opposed, them. And they've opposed and the they've genocide opposed, allegation. They, they were right. actually in support of uh, uh, the Israeli case, so they, they came out uh, on that side. And yet, so for Canada, the champion of the rules-based international order, it does not make sense how, when it comes to Palestine, everything changes. Do you think they're just waiting for the final verdict? That's the stance? Or what do you think is happening? There? If Had they uh, been in that position, they wouldn't have added all of this talk about self-defense. No, they're standing with Israel on this. Mona Abu Amara, Chief Representative of the Palestinian Delegation to Canada. I always appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in today. This week, the Liberals kicked it off in Montreal with their cabinet retreat, focused on the affordability crisis. But the reset ahead of Parliament's return week, well, it didn't quite go as planned. First, a highly anticipated ruling from the federal court that found the government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act and the convoy protests was unreasonable. Then, a Liberal MP called for a leadership review of Justin Trudeau before backtracking on that. And former Fox News host Tucker Carlson came to Canada, speaking at an event with Alberta Premier Daniel Smith and taking aim at the Prime Minister. But my priority as Prime Minister and our priority as a government is to make sure that Canadians are supported. We do not agree with this decision and respectfully we will be appealing it. 
every leader, every party has a best before date. Our best before date is here. Okay, we're going to talk about this with the Friday Power Panel. Nigan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. The CBC's Jason Markasoff is in Calgary, and here with me in studio in Ottawa, journalist and author Paul Wells and editorial writer for Le Devoir, Marie Vastel. Uh, hello, gang. Uh, thank hello. you for being here today. Okay, Paul, uh, was it Macmillan? Events, dear boy, events. Right? This is the thing that comes into every government's life cycle. Every leader has to deal with it, with a, you know their own MP saying their best before date is here. <coughs> Where are the Liberals at the end of this week that was supposed to be kind of like a public reset before they, they go back to the trenches, a question period, and everything on Monday? I ran into an MP uh, on their way out of town, and I said, what's the mood in caucus? And they said, it's flat, but they don't want to hear it. By they, this person mm. meant the prime minister and his entourage. Um, uh, boy, that sounds like a, a, st- a story we've heard before. Um, there's a limit to what a government can do in its ninth year. Themselves, and they should they should they should look at their own uh, record and um, uh, policies as though they were a new government coming in to fix uh, the previous government. Obviously, that's that's not something that mm. that that the group around the prime minister finds very appealing. Given that, then all they ha- all they can do is, or all uh, they've convinced themselves that all they can do is communicate it better. <laughs> and it's amazing how often communicating things better ends up meaning communicating it the same way they were doing it last week. Um, but, uh, I mean, I've been around long enough to see this a few times. It's, it's really hard to show fresh new agility when, you're in, when you've been around for close to a decade. Marie, where, where do you think they are, and where do you think the Conservatives are as we get ready to go back to Parliament Monday? I think the Conservatives are quite happy. Uh, they've been quite happy for a while. I, I, what I thought interesting in, in um, Ken McDonald's um, sort of... Uh, odyssey. I think we can call it an odyssey. Well, yeah. him, him... Or symphony. It had three movements. Being so <laughs> candid and then retracting it yeah. so quickly. Obviously, he had a chat with the government whip, uh, which the government whip said she spoke to him. Uh, but it also might suggest that he felt a little bit alone um, in saying that out loud and, and out in public. Because if he felt like he had a ton of support in caucus to say it out loud, not saying they're not saying it privately, um, perhaps he would have stood by what he had to say. So that, to me, maybe indicates that that some people in caucus, while they do wonder in private when you talk to them um, if the prime minister should leave, um, they might also uh, recognize that the liberal fatigue is getting maybe as high as the Justin Trudeau um, fatigue. I thought this pivot by the, the, the Liberals this week um, was not surprising, where they tried to um, paint Mr. Polievre as risky. There's, they, they were already doing it before, but they're really doing it much more, I find, yeah. uh, with the new year. This seems to be mostly part of their strategy. Risky domestically with his policies, perhaps cuts they're saying. They wanted to define the choice this year. Yes, it and risky with dealing know, with Donald right? Trump. Um, it does seem like it's their best window of opportunity. Uh, if you look at polls and the fact that... Um, a large part of the electorate that is saying they will, they would vote for the Liberals is doing it to block the other mm-hmm. guy, not because they're inspired um, by the Liberals. It is a window of opportunity for them, but I think it's also risky because it's, it's not a solid support when you vote for someone to block the other guy yeah. versus the Conservative support seems much stronger right now. And I would say that's their challenge. To Paul's point, 
stop just communicating better. Maybe tell people why you why do you want another four years other than protect the last eight from Pierre Poliev. Yeah, just uh, one quick point on uh, Ken McDonald as well. I was looking at my phone, a text I got from a liberal MP described it as very disappointing and amateur. It's one thing to take a different opinion publicly on issues, yeah. but this was calling out the leader and the entire caucus slash government, in my opinion. And so there was a lot of that, and Ken McDonald may run provincially, so you know, it, yeah. he's, got a, he's got an exit plan. Mm. So, uh, Jason, uh, you know, one of the issues that the, the liberals tried to uh, hit the conservatives with, uh, using Daniel Smith sort of as their on-ramp to Pierre Polyev, uh, was the Tucker Carlson appearance. Appearances, uh, in Alberta this week. You wrote about this. I'm not sure if you were in the room or not at the event in Calgary. I, is, what do you think the implications of this are? Is there a, a broader implication of him appearing with the Premier and, and this all getting linked uh, tangentially by the Liberals to the federal Conservatives? Did, did four uh, Liberal MPs come out and say anything else so equivocally? Uh, this week, I'm, I wasn't yeah. tuning into all the uh, news conferences, but uh, that was uh, something quite interesting um, that you had, uh, what was it, Boisneau, uh, Saint-Ange, um, Rodriguez, and uh, Gilbo himself, who was mentioned uh, by uh, by Danielle Smith, the premier, uh, hoping that Tucker Carlson would help her, uh, help her get him in his crosshairs. And I'm not sure how... Uh, Tucker Carlson will help in her uh, chaotic quest to quixotic quest to uh, fire get get him fired, but um, that's her her, her attempt. Uh, they you know they've been keen before this and uh, since with Trudeau's speech to caucus as well um, to paint any conservative or conservatism writ large uh, with this MAGA brush and. Um, Tucker Carlson, who's probably one of the foremost uh, avatars of MAGA politics uh, to Canadians, um, was a great opportunity for them to do that. They were they seemed very keen to do that, putting mm. four four MPs, four sorry, four cabinet ministers out there to uh, vociferously denounce him. Uh, you know, P- they probably would have loved to see uh, one of Pierre Polyev's uh, MPs in attendance at the, those events in Edmonton and Calgary. They didn't get that. Uh, that's probably some canniness from. Uh, Pierre Polyev, having learned about the what happened uh, when that German uh, ultra right politician came last year, um, but they you know they will take any opportunity to uh, use that use those attacks uh, use those associations um, either with MPs or Polyev himself or you know anybody on the right um, and it'll be interesting to watch how much they try to use Danielle Smith as a whipping post to uh, or a whipping character to um, hit on uh, on Polyev. And whether that works or not, whether Polyev has to uh, step in and distance himself from Daniel Smith. Nigan, how do you read, read the whole Tucker Carlson thing? Is this a, a sideshow and a distraction, as a lot of conservatives will tell you is the case on this? And a, 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 I believe Pierre Polyev called it a desperate attempt by the liberals to try to you know, slander his crowd. But there's an audience for Tucker Carlson. Like A lot of people paid a lot of money to go see him speak. He's got the number three news podcast in Canada, according to the latest Apple charts. I mean, there's an audience here for a guy who said some pretty homophobic things and some pretty dishonest things on Fox News that too much of a liar for Fox, essentially, is what it came down to. What do you make of his his cameo in Canadian politics this week? Uh, he appeals to uh, a burn-it-down kind of vision that uh, is gaining popularity and sees no faith in government of any kind. And then highly ironic that uh, they keep saying, well, Tucker Carlson could be a potential vice president nominee. Uh, I mean, there's nothing worse burning down government than, I guess, from the inside, I suppose. Uh, the 
Tucker Carlson is a person who is main job is to keep Tucker Carlson in the news. Uh, there's probably no more sillier than when he left a message, a uh, voicemail message, to say that he was going to liberate Canada. I mean, that kind of exact nonsense is the kind of uh, stuff that gets a lot of attention, a lot of clickbait. Uh, the question will be is whether uh, you can turn that into any sort of measure of support. I mean, it's certainly something that I think Danielle Smith, who wants to, wants to keep herself in the news and look to be a certain kind of political brand by appearing on stage with him, which not also to mention that Jordan Peterson was at that event, uh, Conrad Black was at that event. It was kind of a who's who of shock jocks in Canadian politics. And what you had is uh, Daniel Smith right in the middle of it. I mean, that means that we're all talking about Daniel Smith and we're also talking about Tucker Carlson. So one of the problems that liberals have is how much attention do you give to it? How much air do you give to a spark that will turn into a flame because then you'll get burned? That's the real challenge of how much do you pay attention to this and bringing out four cabinet ministers to address it certainly looks like a bit of a desperate approach. Mm -hmm. uh, it certainly doesn't look like a proactive approach. I think uh, what's much more proactive is in the caucus speech when Trudeau's talking about what Polyev voted against and being very specific. I saw that as as a move that uh, is a kind of a new approach. I mean, he mentioned Pierre Polyev uh, 19 times in that opening speech mm. and the Conservatives. He's never really done that much approaches before and being very specific, saying Polyev voted against the Canadian child benefit, the Canadian dental care benefit, $10 a day child care, so on and so forth. I mean, being that specific, I think, gets you a lot more, maybe not clickbait, but it certainly is a much more proactive argument. Right, and also Ukraine, Paul, was something that the Prime Minister referenced quite a few times uh, in that speech. But you could see there how in his speech to caucus, how he was trying to frame the choice and frame the debate, you know, the difference between him and Pierre Polyev. But, you know, to, to Jason and, and Nigan's point, they did have like this quartet of cabinet ministers come out and go all aboard the, the Tucker Carlson issue. How effective is this strategy, do you think, in terms of trying to link all of these things together and connect it uh, to the leader of the Conservative Party? The thing I keep reminding myself is that Canada is a complex country with a lot of different populations, and so it's going to have different levels of effectiveness. Right. It's going to call the liberal base home something fierce. If you say, uh, not only am I, I'm not just saying this guy's like Trump, people who like Trump are up uh, in Canada um, uh, singing from his hymn book, you know, uh, that will... Um, motivate the base. For uh, people who might have voted liberal in the past but are disaffected, it'll sound like a distraction. It'll sound like, you know, I, I can't make ends meet, the bills are becoming more and more onerous, and you want to talk about a guy who used to be the American president. Um, and, uh, and then the deeper danger is that more and more Canadians like Donald Trump. Uh, the deeper danger for the Liberals. 57% of, of uh, Conservative voters in one recent poll said they preferred Trump to Biden. And so, um, uh, you know, if, you're, if, if you have any hope in this polarized environment of going and get some of that electorate, then that, that's not going to help at all. Um, the thing about rolling out four cabinet ministers and the prime minister spending a half hour to talk about um, the opposition leader you know, more than he was talking about his own program. That's a byproduct of a problem the Liberals have, which is that they have, they have not a lot of money to spend on ads, and they have uh, this, the Prime Minister's conviction that somehow he's the only guy in politics who doesn't, get, who doesn't skate on, on, on negative ads, which means that his entire cabinet and caucus have to become the negative ads. Mm. They can't concentrate on government because they're the negative message. And I would suggest to them that that's a bad plan. 
Yeah, sunny ways uh, may not work. Uh, eight, yeah, eight, nine years later. But you know, Marie, you know, Paul points out that I don't. The conservative supporters, I, I, not accessible, no. very accessible for the liberals at all. Yeah. What about the NDP voters? Yeah. Because this is the play, right? It's try to galvanize and coalesce the way you know Pierre Polyev is coalescing the angry and the mm-hmm. disaffected and, and the frustrated. Um, and Pierre, uh, Justin Trudeau is going to try to coalesce mm-hmm. the progressives mm-hmm. against that. I mean, can this play work and, and shake Luke Jagmeet Singh supporters? I think so, but again, it's 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 not guaranteed, um, right? So it, it, Mr. Singh's in a tough spot because he also has blue-orange voters that he's trying to not lose to the conservatives. <clears throat> um, but that's what I was alluding to earlier in, in, in this Angus poll, uh, Angus Reid poll that came out at the beginning of the week. They said that a third of NDP voters could switch to the Liberals if if they see that the Conservatives right. could win government, and 20% of Bloc voters um, in Quebec could do the same. And clearly, that's what the Liberals um, and that's are not insignificant on. in the national picture, right? Like a third yes, of the NDP's twenty percent is six, seven percentage points. But right? it would only narrow the gap between the Conservatives and the Liberals to seven points. Right. There's still a gap existing, and it's if 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 people vote, people switch their votes, people. Um, it's, and and so there is that growth opportunity. Um, but I agree with Paul and Egan that at a certain point, um, painting Mr. Poirier as so risky to get people to come back to your liberal fold only goes so far uh, and only convinces so many people. I think um, perhaps reminding people of what a conservative government would mean in terms of policies, in terms of changes to Canada... Right. That's probably more convincing than just saying, hey, look, Tucker Carlson's here. Hey, look, Donald Trump said this. I don't think that's as effective. And, 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 and I think this government really needs to have things to offer soon because we're getting close to one year from a potential election. Right. Okay. Uh, gang, uh, liberals aren't quite out of time, but we are uh, today. <laughs> I want to thank you all. Marie Vestel, Nigan Sinclair, Paul Wells, and Jason Marcusaw. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, gang. Thanks. 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 That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.